Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Teachers Books and Wine podcast. I am Morgan, the teacher behind this podcast. I hope you all are having a great month of May, if that's when you're listening. I know around here, I got about a week of school left until our summer session starts, and my children are crazy, so I hope your class is a little bit calmer than mine is, but if not, grab your book and grab your wine, because we're going to dive in. So obviously this month we have been reading The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. I am pretty hooked into this book. I'm not going to lie, historical fiction, not usually my thing. I need a little bit more suspense. I need a little bit more uh, risque maybe sometimes. But So I tend not to gravitate toward the historical fiction, but I am really enjoying this. I totally thought it was going to be about a nurse because it's titled The Nightingale. Turns out it's not, um, which I kind of like better. I love that it's a code name. Um, and I love that it's about women. That's why I picked it. I think it's really, really cool to see the other side of World War II, something that's not often depicted, at least not in the history books. And especially if you're in the States like I am, I have, I have zero background knowledge of France in World War II. So learning about what it was truly like back then and getting a feel for what was left behind when the men went off to war is pretty awesome. So the first chapter starts off in a little bit more of a modern day era um, when the character, whomever it is, is older, um, kind of in the final stages of life. I think it's set in 1995. So an era that we're more familiar with and an age that we're more familiar with. But I do find it very interesting that we are not told who that narrator is in that first chapter. So we're kind of left to guess at least for the first part of the book, who that character is and who was describing, who named their child after their father, which I find interesting, and we'll go back to that in a little bit. Um, And I don't know about you, but I was kind of under the impression or the guess that it was Vianne in the first chapter because it immediately cut to her Um, in that second chapter. So I just kind of assumed that it was Vianne. But as we've moved along in the chapters, I think it's becoming more and more apparent that it's not Vianne, it's most likely Isabel, although we haven't been confirmed yet. Um, But I, I really was struck by the part where she was saying, my son doesn't know the true me, maybe I should have danced around more, been more of myself because my children or my son didn't know my true character and I think that is pretty evident to me that that's probably Isabel because she's more of the spunky spontaneous character who would be dancing drunkenly um, but clearly kind of gave that life up as she got older and I think those pieces are going to be coming together a little bit more Um, as we go along in the book, but we haven't quite seen it yet. 
uh, at least not through chapter 19. So in the first part of the book, we are introduced to the two sisters, Isabel and Vianne, and we quickly get the picture that these two are opposites. Vianne is pretty naive, I think, in her own way. She kind of adopts the head-in-the-sand approach, um, stick to the plan, don't rock the boat. And then Isabel is clearly the rebel and the risk taker and likes to push the buttons and and see where she can get with whom and really just is the fiery soul in the two sisters. Um, I asked on Instagram who you associated yourself more with in this book and and who um, or which sister you would more likely be like in this situation of the war. And um, a few of you responded. Most of you were saying, you know, it's, it's hard to say, obviously, it's hard to say which sister you would be like in that situation, having never been in that kind of situation yourself. But... It's easy to want to say you're going to be like Isabel. It's easy to say, well, I would definitely stand up for what I believe in and I wouldn't cave into the Nazis because we know now how awful it was. And we would all love to say, oh, of course I would stand up for the people that my neighbors and my friends and I would never rat them out and I would never... um, you know, give in to their will because that's just wrong and and we can all say that in hindsight and not not being put in that position. But would we? I don't know. I I don't know. I I would love to say for me personally, like, yes, I have this fire. I stand up for what I believe in. I am fiercely passionate about justice, which I am. Um... However, I look at Vianne's situation and she is a mom. She's a wife. She That's all she knows since she was a teenager is how to be a mom and a wife and a teacher and go home and do the same routine over and over again and keep your family safe and keep them fed. And knowing that she has Sophie to look after... I understand her want to just kind of bury her head in the sand and say, well, this isn't happening. I'm I'm going to ignore it as much as I can. I'm going to try to keep things as normal as I can and keep my head down and keep us safe that way. Um, I, I can't imagine being in that I can't imagine being in this position at all um thankfully I haven't ever had to be in any kind of war situation but I also can't imagine further being a mom in a situation like that where not only are you trying to keep yourself alive you're trying to keep your child alive while your husband is who knows where alive or dead I I just I, I don't it's hard to say I wouldn't act like her given the dire circumstances that she was put under. I also, too, just feel very conflicted about 
Vianne in general because of what she's been put, the situation she's been put into with Captain Beck basically moving into her house without any, uh, without any forewarning or permission or anything from her, having some random soldier from the enemy line being like, well, alrighty, I'm moving in here, you can stay or go, that would be really weird too. And so watching her interact with Beck in the situations where she doesn't know how to take him um, because he is polite and he is, you know, courteous and is actually being very kind to her even though he's supposed to be the enemy. It makes me feel weird. I don't know how it would make you feel, but I feel weird about it because... I'm like, well, yeah, he seems like a nice man. I don't know. But he's a Nazi, so there's that. But it just makes me put things into a different perspective because I'm like, well, yeah, he's a Nazi and we say that's bad, but really he's just fighting for his country at the time. And I'm sure he has some moral issues with what he's doing, but it's either follow Hitler or die. So he's kind of trying to make the best of it by being kind and courteous to this woman that he just takes over her house. And I can see, we can see in the story, Vian's struggle with, okay, well, he's the enemy and he's supposed to be bad, but he's being really nice to me and he's helping me in some ways. So... I can understand her conflict because I'm conflicted. I, I, I don't. I, I really don't know how to feel about him, to be honest. Um, and I hate saying that, but at the end of the day, he is just a human who got put into a bad situation, like everyone did. Hitler tore shit apart, and people were on one side or the other without any say in it. And that is, that makes war into a human issue when really it's just a bunch of people. Had they met on the street in any other circumstance, they would be polite to each other. They would probably be friends had they spent enough time together, but now they're enemies living under the same roof. And it is conflicting. I do think the true nature of war, though, came around and showed its face when Beck asked Vianne for that list of names. Obviously, he was under pressure to get her list for his superiors. However, it makes it clear that all is fair in war because I'm sure, while I'm sure he didn't particularly want to ask her, he did and he had to and she gave them to him, um, which is another thing to talk about. But Honestly, I don't feel like she had much of a choice um, that 
list was going to be found whether she said it or not. He obviously knew that Rachel was Jewish given the fact that he called Vianne out for not putting Rachel's name on the list in the first place. So they already clearly had a list. They just needed confirmation. So her giving him the list really didn't change anything in the long run. But it does go to show what Vianne's mindset was at the time and also maybe her true nature. Um, I think she gave that list out of fear for herself and for her family, which again is understandable. But at the same time, it it was definitely a place of um, being naive too because... She clearly didn't really think through what that list's impact was going to be after they started eliminating people from her job. She finally, it finally clicked and it finally registered for her that her actions had implications and serious implications at that. And at that point, she was helping the enemy. Whether she realized it or not, that's exactly what she was doing. And I think that's another marker of her just keeping her head down, keeping her head in the sand, and also just trying to pretend like none of this is really happening. I think that's kind of a common theme for her is, well, it's not really happening. This is not really happening. I'm doing this. It's going to be over. I'm getting through it. I'm doing the best I can. It's not happening. I'm just going to keep pretending like everything is fine, and when things are not fine... I'm going to do whatever I can to make it as fine as I can. Is that the best approach? Um, well, probably not. I do think it helps keep you alive for a little while, which is clearly the number one priority. But it's also obviously going to hurt people, as in the case with that list. Her not understanding the implications of her actions led to hurting other people, including her best friend. So I think Isabel's true childlike nature is kind of, I mean, um, Vianne's childlike nature is coming out in that scenario where she did give the list without really thinking through what the implications of that list were. But again... Did it make a difference? Probably not. They would have found it anyways, but it just was a very clear moment of this is who she is, this is how she acts, and she is just trying to get through it without really thinking through what's actually happening. So while on one hand we have Vianne, who is essentially pretending like none of this is happening, we have Isabel on the other hand. So... Isabel is obviously the fire soul. She is the feisty one. And I I have to say, I really do like her character. Um, I find her very likable, even though she is very naive. And she's she is very brash and kind of puts her foot in her mouth frequently. I find her very entertaining. And I just like her spunk. But... She definitely um, 
has a way of getting herself into trouble. I think her journey so far has been fascinating. It it truly strikes me that her whole journey up into where she is now in chapter 19 started with just this anger, this like fiery pit in her stomach and the only way she got it out was by taking a piece of chalk and writing a V on a poster. That that whole journey started with defacing a poster and it's it quickly escalated into something much more as we saw but I think it's it's almost symbolic of her growing up having to grow up so quickly because she again like Vianne didn't really think things through um, didn't really understand the implications of her actions and it led her into this basically grassroots underground rebellion. So once she gets pulled into that secret society, we sh- will call it, her true character and I guess I think her true calling for her personality type is revealed and I love that. Um, I think it's pretty awesome that she has basically found a way, an outlet for her um, true inner nature, her true inner rebellion. It's it's being productive now. Um, So moving from that initial defacing of the poster to distributing the papers and then all the way to um, the scenario in chapter 19 where she is literally saving lives by getting um, British soldiers over the mountains. That whole um, process of from you know the minor vandalism to literally <laughs> climbing a mountain to save people's lives and to continue... Um, the fight against Nazi Germany is amazing and a really, really awesome central focal point of this novel. Um, I don't know about you, but when we found out what Julian was doing, Isabel and Vianne's dad, I had to take a moment. I could not believe that we had been hearing about this man who was printing papers and risking his life, and that man turned out to be her father, the one that she was so sure was collaborating with the Nazis and was just an alcoholic and had no pride. He turned out to be the paper guy? What? I I couldn't believe it. I, I, I had this almost like a swell of pride when I heard, when I read that, because I just, I was like, hell yeah, dude, you, you do the damn thing, like, you fooled everybody, I can't believe it, you fooled your daughters, you fooled your neighbors, you're fooling the Nazis, like, you're kind of a badass, and now I understand where Isabel gets it, because I think we had been told throughout the whole novel of, like, what a letdown he was and kind of a weakling and 
um, you know, really just had almost fallen off the face of the earth. And then all of a sudden we come to find out that, oh, look, you and your daughter are working for the same team. You actually are in the same spirit. Like, that is where your daughter got it. I I just thought that was so awesome and such a great twist. And I'm really, really interested to see where it goes from here um, because I think he's probably going to make for a very interesting character. And going back to what I was talking about at the beginning, we know now that somebody, probably Isabel, names their son after Julian, um, the father. And that, to me, screams that there is a huge turnaround in this father-daughter relationship because at the beginning of the book, there's no way in hell either of those girls could have named or would have named their child after their father but clearly something changes clearly they probably Isabel sees her father in a different light and loves and respects him enough to name her own child after him and I'm really excited to see what brings that on because I think it's going to be major another part of Isabel's journey that really struck me was this idea that there were women left behind in the war who became this trafficking system. It reminded me of the Underground Railroad in the U.S. Civil War and how women like Harriet Tubman literally hid people from the enemy and got them to freedom in the dead of the night under the elements and risk their own lives to do it. That that kind of central thread of a human spirit and a human sacrifice and risking, I mean, just the idea of risking your life in that manner to help someone else is astounding. And I... I wish I could say I would have the guts to do it. I, If push came to shove, I don't know if I could or not. But knowing that these kind of women really did exist in World War II and in the Civil War and probably in every war there ever has been, there are people risking their lives to save others. It's just, it makes me so (laughs) joyful to know that in the deepest darkest depths of despair in the hardest times of war there are people out there who are doing good and they are doing good without any reason other than it is the right thing to do and because they feel like they should and they feel like it's their calling and I know that this is a fictional novel, but I'm sure it's based on many factual events. And it makes me happy and hopeful for humankind to know that those types of people truly do exist. And they are the heroes among us, as are so many others. But those are the people who 
have the heart and the wherewithal to stand up for what they truly believe in and to truly make a difference in history. And I'm so glad that there is a depiction of those types of figures in both fiction and nonfiction so that we can understand what what people resort to when times get hard. They're, they, I think the sisters in this novel are actually a pretty good example of the two different types of people and the two different types of ways that people react to dire circumstances. There are the people who want to stick to what they know and try to protect their own, which is fine. And then there's the people who get fired up and need to make a difference, and that's fine too. But um, I love that we get to see both sides of those personalities, both sides of those reactions, and um, kind of understand from two different perspectives what it's like or what it might be like to be in that wartime situation. And speaking of what it's like to be in a wartime situation, one of the things that I find most striking in this novel is the depiction of truly what it was like to be in this wartime situation. And and by that I mean just the utter lack of everything. They lacked everything. And the the first real monumental scene is when Isabel is trying to walk from Paris out to the countryside. And the imagery of the people, just the masses of people who are dirty and smelly and hungry and doing every, literally doing anything and everything they can just to survive... That imagery was startling to me and gave me a pretty good idea of what to expect in this book um, and from this writer because it was, I was there, you know, I was there, I was seeing it. Um, I think the next scene like that was when the mass of people came to Vianne's house and just trampled her garden and tried to get into the house and they had to bunker down and pretend like no one was home and they the windows were shaking and you know just the imagery of that also just was very striking to me of how scary that would be because she didn't know I mean she didn't know that that was happening in Paris and that people were having a mass exodus can you imagine if she hadn't gotten that slight warning from those first three women who had showed up? Holy moly. They would have ransacked her house. I, I just, that would have been quite scary. And then, of course, as time goes on in the novel, the depiction of just slowly and steadily not having those resources, um, seeing how their shoes are worn out and there are no more shoes to buy and their clothes are worn out and there's no more clothes to buy and they have to get in line super early for scraps of meat and they may or may not be able to eat that day and if they do eat, it's 
pickles that they had stored in the cellar, but that's all they have left, and there's no electricity to be had. Even if you have the money, there is there there aren't resources, and that too to me was very a very startling depiction because it's not something that we think about. I think, at least in our modern day society and in our first world countries. Most of the time, if you have the money, you can get the resources. The Whether or not you have the money to get it is one thing, but, you know, it's not like the grocery store ran out of milk and there's no more milk in the city. You know, you can go across the street and get milk somewhere else. But knowing that there literally isn't, there, there isn't anything to buy, that is is something I never thought about. I I obviously have heard stories like that from um, the war eras and the depression eras, but the the imagery that um, Kristen Hanna has painted is awesome in a horrible, awful way, but awesome in that she really has made the story come to life um and that just goes to show what kind of a great writer she is and also what kind of a great researcher she is because she clearly knows what it was like um, and put in the work to make sure that we could see it too so we finished off chapter 19 with isabel um bringing the british pilots to safety in Spain, kind of succeeding in her first big Nightingale mission. And I am really excited to see where this story goes. To be honest, I feel like it's just starting. I feel like this is the very beginning of the true story of Isabel and the Nightingale. And um, I'm kind of excited. I felt like it was a little slow at the beginning. That's just my opinion. Again, I'm used to reading a bunch of like suspenseful thrillers, so I'm excited that we're getting into the meat of the story now. Um, and I'm really interested to see where it goes. I have not read it. I do not read the books ahead of time because I want to be able to do these podcasts with the same sense of unknowing that you guys are reading it in. Um, I am enjoying kind of going into it blind and learning the story as you guys are. Um, So I'm super excited about the rest of this book and I am going to pick it back up now that I have done this podcast and I'm not going to give you any accidental spoilers. Um, I do want to say that the next podcast will be airing on May 30th. That will be the rest of the book. So from chapter 20 forward, I'm going to post discussion questions on Instagram as I did um, for this episode. I would love for you guys to participate. Please, please, please. I want to hear what you're saying because I want to incorporate it into this podcast. I would love for you guys to send me a video so I can use your voice on the podcast because I think that would be really awesome. Um, But I'm going to post those questions um, probably around 
the 27th or 28th. So get back to reading. Um, make sure you get through the book by the end of May because we're starting, well, you don't have to. This podcast will be here no matter when you read it. Um, but we are going to be starting a new book in June and I'm going to make the announcement of what that book is right now. So June's book is going to be The Perfect Mother by Amy Malloy. This is actually a book club of the month book or book of the month book. Um, and I have noticed that a lot of you on Instagram have already gotten this book. This was your book of the month pick. So you already have it. So um, we're going to get through the first half of that book by June 15th. I'm going to post the details on Instagram. That's at Teachers Books Wine. But if you are going to join us for next month, go ahead and get that book whenever you're ready and make sure you have it by June 1st so that you are ready to go when we are done with The Nightingale. As always, thank you guys so much for joining me. I cannot tell you how happy this podcast makes me. I was actually pretty nervous nervous about recording this first real episode because I was afraid I wasn't going to have anything to say or it was just something else to do on my to-do list. But I've had a lot of fun the last 33 minutes, and I hope that you guys have been enjoying reading the book. I really, really, really love connecting with you guys on Instagram. This community has already been amazing, and I look forward to seeing you guys more over there. So go ahead, if you're not on Instagram with me, um, go ahead and find me at Teachers Books Wine. That's where all the extras are happening. Go ahead and share this podcast with your friends so you guys can do it all together. I'm so glad that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to make time for yourself, um, which is really what this is. It's time for you. It's it's something extra that you can do that isn't your job. It's not mom life. It's not housework. It's something that you can take time for yourself to do. And to me, that's the most important part. So thank you for joining me. I am so happy you're here. I'm so proud of you for taking the time for yourself. Go ahead and get June's book, The Perfect Mother. And I will see you here on May 30th for part two of The Nightingale. Bye!